and you can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-age kids to head to the back. While they're going, parents, if you're with us, you uh, received um, in your uh, connection guide some information about what they'll be learning today and how you can... um, how we can partner with you on uh, what that looks like and uh, how you can reinforce those things at home. Um, Younger kids are learning the Jesus Storybook Bible and the older kids something from uh, our New City Catechism. While they're doing that, if you will open your Bibles or devices or however you follow along to Acts chapter 19, we've been working through the book of Acts. Man, for almost a year we've been trying to get through this thing, and uh, we're getting closer. Uh, We're going to skip 18 and come back to that next week. I thought 19 fit really well with Jason's sermon last week on uh, really idolatry and how the gospel confronts the idols of our heart and the idols of a community. And uh, you can, again, listen to that on podcast um, from from last week that Jason talked about. And we're going to continue that study today. Um, we're going to go through the whole chapter, so there'll be a lot of reading. Uh, most of it, I think, I put on the screen uh, for you to follow with us. But this is, I think, really important today. I, I don't know if you, like me, you watch the news, you get these reports, and it seems like the church is really losing ground. And if you're not careful, a little panic sets in. What we've enjoyed for, you know, decades and decades of being a Christian nation is uh, certainly it's just not true anymore. Um, especially as uh, the change in culture are departing from not even just Christian ideals, but less and less and less and less and less people actually claim to be Christian, identified by that they believe that Jesus is the way to heaven. And um, of course, Christianity is so much more than that. And my heart was so encouraged in this. And just as I, as I read chapter 19 of Acts, of the gospel invading one of the most wicked cities of, um, of the era, and even compared uh, to all of, uh, all of history that we have, uh, the city at Ephesus was certainly one of the most wicked, the city of Corinth, another one of the most wicked, the city of Athens, one of the most wicked, and yet Paul brings the gospel into these places, and today you can go over there and take tours and not see all these great temples to these false gods, you take a tour there to see how the gospel reshaped an entire area, and namely brought about by this guy, Paul, and his little, you know, band of sojourners as they go in there. And, and I want to focus uh, not just on the culture, we're going to talk about that, I want to focus on how the gospel transforms your heart and how the gospel transforms a community. And this is what we're going to see kind of as we get in this, and again, this is encouraging to my heart because not just that, uh, that we're losing ground, right? But, I mean, scandals are rocking the church. Uh, the Catholic church right now under scandal after scandal. The evangelical church, leader after leader seems to be falling. The millennials or this current generation seem to be running away from the church at this alarming rate. And if you're not careful, you look at all that evidence and you'll think, man, God is losing But that is certainly not the case. We know where this is headed. So let's jump in. Uh, There's really five scenes, five different scenes in chapter 19. And again, I told you there's going to be a lot of reading. Um, So we're not going to stand for this. But uh, I I want you to try to follow along with us. 
The first scene is, uh, and this is, these five scenes really are answering how Paul plants a church, how Paul brings the gospel to bear upon a community. And the first way is that he brings the spiritual curious into salvation through Jesus. Look at it with me in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth that Paul passed through an inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So these are not uh, disciples of Jesus. These are not yet believers. We see that they don't have the Holy Spirit. And he said, then, uh, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, and that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. The first thing that Paul does when he enters an area is not go and, uh, you know, compete with uh, the naysayers, but he brings the spiritual curious into salvation uh, through faith in Jesus. And we see certainly this is what's happening here in Ephesus as this group of people who had heard of Yahweh, God of the Bible, baptized in uh, John's baptism. And uh, Paul says, oh no, this is something, that was just a foreshadow to something even greater They received the Holy Spirit, and we see that some supernatural things were happening in their lives. So the first thing he does, bring the spiritual curious. Second thing, and we're going to blow through kind of these first four, spend most of our time in the fifth scene. This is the second scene in uh, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn... And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, you see, capital W, capital W, talking about the way of Jesus. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Ephesus uh, was, uh, was a highway, right, of uh, travel and trade. A lot of people going through Asia there. We see what Paul is doing, and this is kind of the second thing Paul does when he goes to plant a church, is he focuses on the disciples, not on the resistant. So he's teaching, at the, teaching the disciples there for a few months, it says, and then there became some that were very stubborn. That was their first step. And then they begin speaking evil about the way, about Christianity. And uh, this is a pretty normal reaction to Christianity. I've got several people, even within my own extended family, who take a very similar attitude to this. They became stubborn against Christianity, and now they speak evil of it. Every, Every scandal that seems to hit the news is more ammunition for them to go on social media platforms and attack Christianity. And so Paul is not necessarily bothered, bothered by this. He left, the, he left there, goes and rents out a little lecture hall, the school of Tyrannus, and he begins to, um, to continue to preach the gospel to these disciples. And this is just the principle that Paul is using, to look and see where God's at work, the soil that is fertile, and he begins to plant and work there. It says in verse 10 that Paul labored there for two years. And I love too, at the bottom of that, it says that everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Paul had a, certainly a pretty 
compelling argument as he gets out and he is proclaiming the word of the Lord. And this being a city in which many, many people pass through, we see the gospel is being communicated so that, right, it says all the residents of Asia began to hear the word of the Lord. And here we begin to see partially, certainly not fully, the fulfillment of the Great Commission. When Jesus says that you're going to go into Jerusalem and Judea and then ultimately to all the other parts of the world, we see this thing happen as, um, again, we would have to go back several uh, chapters, but Paul gets this vision of the Macedonian man and he goes there and God begins to work. This is the <clears throat> excuse me, middle of his second missionary journey. And uh, some really cool things begin to happen as Asia is hearing the gospel. The third scene. They see extraordinary power, the, the extraordinary power of God released into their context. This is a pretty amazing story in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I mean, just pause right there. Uh, this was a very... Um, this is a very uh, witchcraft, voodoo-type society, and they had all these incantations that they would, you know, say. And so they heard that, 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 uh, that, that maybe that's the phrase you have to say, you know, by, by, the, by, by Jesus and whom Paul worships. So they're using the phrase, but they have no relationship with God. Look at what, what happens after these uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists. I can just kind of see that on their little business card. This is what I am, itinerant Jewish exorcist. Um, but ultimately they had no power. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. It's the family, the family thing. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil, was in the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded which I don't know if we had to point out the fact that they were wounded. If you go in the house with clothes on and are beaten up so bad that you go out of the house without clothes on, you lost that fight. Verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all in the name of the Lord. Jesus was extolled. These extraordinary power of, the extraordinary power of God began to be released. And we have a couple different instances of it. One is uh, the little handkerchiefs that would even touch Paul's skin would be carried to people who were sick and it would heal them because of the power of God. Now there's some people, I know sometimes if you're up really late at night and watching certain television series, uh, they'll try to sell you these, uh, these, these powerful hankies. You ever seen this? Like this has been wet with the tears of some, some, some person. And just having these, you know, for a gift to our ministry of $50, you can have this glorious hanky. I don't think it works uh, that way. That's not what was happening here. What was happening in that culture is several of these people that believed in these incantations, this witchcraft, this voodoo, that that was their claim, that this certain witch doctor was so powerful or his incantations was so powerful 
this minister of divination was so powerful that you didn't even have to be in his presence. Just things that had touched him would, would, would begin to drive out uh, evil spirits. And so in a society like this, it certainly had animists. Um, they believed this. And so this is kind of the whole, uh, you know, Moses and his staff, and he throws it down, and it's a snake, and then he goes to Pharaoh, and, you know, their people do the same thing, and then, you know, Moses' snake, staff that turned to snake eats all the other snakes. This is kind of what's, what's happening here, um, that God is proving that his power is greater than any other competing power. The extraordinary power of God was released into their context. And to such a degree, what did it say in verse, uh, end of verse 17, fear fell upon them all. That they knew that this gospel that Paul preached was just not something made up or certain, something even ordinary, but with extraordinary means. The gospel begins to move and lives begin to change. And this is what happens in other cultures Even now, when we bring the gospel in, and it's what happens in our culture, when we bring the gospel to bear, extraordinary things begin to to happen. People, one, see their sin. People, one, begin to ask and confess that sin. People begin to draw near to God. Like these extraordinary things. Now, this is speaking of, you know, this happened with this uh, demon-possessed man. But far greater miracles and far greater supernatural work is for the human heart to be transformed from stone into flesh. And that is certainly what's happening. And Paul goes in and brings the gospel and invests in the disciples, sees extraordinary power. Maybe I would ask this question, what would it look like for the kingdom of God to break into our city, to break into Shreveport and Bossier? What would it look like for the kingdom of God to break into your neighborhood? What would, what would it change? What would it change about your life? What would it change about the rhythms of your life or your neighbors? We're going to talk about that at the end. The fourth thing, fourth scene, is the name of Jesus began to be held in high regard. Again, starting in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greek, and great fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus, you might underline that, was extolled or praised. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of awe. They counted the value, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, millions of dollars in today's money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that phrase, and I've thought about it and spoken it and prayed it even over our city that the word of the Lord would continue to increase and to prevail mightily even over our culture, even over our life, that the word of God would prevail, prevail mightily over your life and over your family, that we would see for it what it is and that we would change our entire lives according to that one statement, that the word of the Lord would increase and prevail mightily. It's what's brought encouragement to my heart even in this week as I've read this and I've seen what's happening in in politics and what's happening around the world and all these bad news, right? All this bad news that seems to wash in, but we have this hope that is in the gospel and we see it certainly in this city. The name of Jesus was held in high regard. I love when that happens, the name of Jesus held in high regard. One of the things that we see happen 
is people dragging things into the light. It says that they came confessing and divulging their practices. These were likely people who were entertaining uh, the gospel in the hall of Tyrannus and they were hearing it preached and preached and then at some point they moved across this threshold of just hearing about Jesus to really believing in Jesus and when that happens you, you drag things from the dark into the light. We also see them sacrificing monetary and cultural success, burning these books that had likely been passed down to them and it was uh, uh, something of great esteem and yet they're burning it in a fire like their lives were so radically changed that things that once meant so much to them they're throwing it into a fire as I was reading this I couldn't help but think of um, several years ago when I first started out in youth ministry um at a, at a local church here, I, I took one of my first mission trips, and uh, Robin uh, Leger, uh, who's in the, who helps work with our kids, oversees our kid ministry, she was one of our students. And uh, we're going to go to this little place, we called it uh, Pig Camp, it's like this place up in Arkansas, no electricity, I mean it is as rural as they can get. And I was going to take like 10 or 12 little church kids, and then... Robin began to invite some of her friends, and she hung out, she, she hung out with quite a few thugs um, that, that I came to realize, and I didn't understand, and they all show up, and we take just a couple van loads up there, and we're not there for, I mean, they're just causing problems, uh, you know, her friends, and we're just persevering, and they're hiding off in the dark somewhere, these, uh, these friends of Robin's, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, this is like where you get, you know, killed up here, <clears throat> And begin to pray for God to move amongst these people. And these students were just so apathetic. The church kids, the non-church kids, they're just playing the game. And I felt the Holy Spirit really fall down in an incredible way. It was the second night that we were up there. And we were just up there for a couple days. We were having a little makeshift church service with no electricity and, you know, some lanterns and, you know, singing out under the stars, basically. And God did something that I will never forget that he brought. His word came and prevailed so mightily that these people began to come up to, there was no altar, just kind of to the front. And they were bringing all their drug paraphernalia. Um, And this is like, you know, I've never seen this before. It scared me to death. Uh, It literally did. And I'm looking and I'm like, what is this? And, you know, I have no idea what this is. You know, who would bring... Who would bring needles and, and, and drugs to, to a youth camp thing? And they're bringing it, and, and this goes on. They go run back to the cabin, and they're bringing back all of this, all these drugs that they brought. I'm a terrible youth pastor, right? I, I brought all this stuff up here. I don't know how this works. Then they're throwing it into the fire. They're, like, burning it. And then I'm thinking, oh, I don't know what's in that. Everybody's going to be high if we're not careful, Right? <laughs> This sense of brokenness came over these teenagers who had come just so hardened of heart. And somehow, in this remote place in Arkansas with no electricity or nothing that any teenager wants to go to today, the Holy Spirit fell down and radically changed the lives of many people. I I, I think, too, just, just in thinking through youth ministry that we've, we missed something for so long, you know, youth ministry for, for me was trying to plan the biggest and the best thing so that kids would come, but they were never changed. 
And even the same thing in church. Like, you know, we could spend hours trying to make this thing not look like a gym, but we're in a gym. And we didn't come here just for the aesthetics, right? We came here so that we, as a group of believers in Jesus, would sing together and and learn together and take communion together and that we would pray that the Holy Spirit would fall in such a way that it would prevail mightily. The gospel begins to gain ground. That takes us to the last scene. The riot that happens in Ephesus. I think I titled this last scene, this great disturbance. Out of verse 23, it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Maybe your translation says there arose a great disturbance concerning the way, the way of Jesus. Paul, in his, uh, just give you a little commentary, in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, he says this about his time in Ephesus. Again, he's been preaching um, in the hall of Tyrannus for at least two years and many months before that in the synagogue. And what's happening in, uh, in, in, in Acts 19 is Luke, the author, is taking about three years of ministry and he's kind of squishing it down into one chapter. That's why we have so many scenes of what's happening. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Man, if that's not descriptive of the gospel work, not only then but today. As the gospel is gaining ground and disciples are being made and people are living on mission, it is certainly going to be opposed by the kingdom of darkness. This is not surprising, nor should it be surprising to you when you see this happen when you see God doing some incredible things in your life and in the lives of those around you, and this is not something we should be fearful of, but we should be aware of. Isn't that what First Peter says? That we're not unaware of the enemy's schemes. He would later remind this very church that he is planting in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10, something you're probably familiar with. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, I know you've heard that. And if you hadn't heard it before, you heard it just now, but we don't live like that. We live as if our battle is against flesh and blood. Find someone who's accusing me wrongly, and we're going to fight this fight together. We're going to fight against one another, but this is it. Listen, the fight is not against someone else. The fight here, it says, is against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness. When the Bible speaks about the arrival of Jesus on the planet, it speaks of it as this landed invasion. As much as he came to be the land of God and shepherd of his people, which he did, he came to be a warrior. First John will say the Son of God appeared for this very purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The arrival of Jesus, again, and we've talked about this before, was a landed invasion. It was to be a rescue operation. He came, as Colossians said, to rescue us out of the dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's what's happening. And I'm going to try to lay this foundation to show you what's fixing to happen in Ephesus. This famous C.S. Lewis quote, probably you've heard before, enemy-occupied territory 
That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in this great campaign of sabotage. And that is what Paul and his friends and these disciples now are doing in the city of Ephesus. What happens when the kingdom of God comes into a city? What happens when the gospel starts taking root into a city? A great disturbance or riots would ultimately happen. When disciples are being made and the mission uh, of God is the result of these disciples being made and the kingdom of light is being expanded, expect, expect opposition. This great disturbance, the word literally means this riot or an uproar. It's the same word used by Luke in Luke's uh, gospel when he's talking about Jesus standing before his accusers next to Pilate. Remember this? And they're all screaming out, right? Crucify him, crucify him. Same word, this great riot or uproar, this great disturbance. What are these people so upset with about Jesus? I mean, all he did was, was love on sinners and heal people and point people right into the way to connect to God. Why are they so upset? Because the kingdom of darkness is behind this. Because Jesus is not just this concept or idea. He's the king of kings. And when he shows up, riots break out because his presence threatens all the other smaller kings. This is a turf war at its highest level. We see this happening in Ephesus, verse 21. Now after these events, speaking of all the things that had happened, the word of God prevailing mightily, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. We're introduced to this goddess Artemis. And I want to give you a little context here. Ephesus, in Ephesus, there was a huge temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. It was built in the 6th century BC. It was huge. It was torn down by some invaders. It was rebuilt. Even today, you can visit Ephesus and you can see one column that still remains. And this thing is the seventh wonder of the world. Uh, even today, you can, you can see uh, artist's rendering of what it looked like. It was double the size of the other Greek temples, including the Parthenon. It was soon regarded again as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 columns, 60 feet high, extremely wide. At its center sat the carved image of Artemis Diana. It was carved from a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. It was a place that was incredibly secure in its day. Most of the Caesars would keep their money there because of its safety. All of the Greek world worshipped Artemis. There are 33 shrines to Artemis across the Roman Empire, far more than any other. They had a one-month festival in the spring that culminated in its last week when people would take a pilgrimage from all the surrounding areas to worship Artemis. And so this is the context of what's happening. 
All of this got the attention of this businessman in Ephesus named Demetrius, and he was evidently a good businessman. He waited to create this mob mentality, waited till everybody was there. He owned a chain of shops where they sold these little silver statues of Artemis, and he starts getting worried because people are turning to God, and they're not buying these little statues anymore. He gets together all the other businessmen in verse 25. He lays out his argument. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trade. And he said, men, you know that from the business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not God's. In addition to uh, the statues, tourism to Artemis' temple was huge, as you can see. You've got hotels and restaurant owners and stands where people are selling bumper stickers like Artemis is my co-pilot or whatever else is happening. Artemis eating the name of Darwin. Um, And Paul seems to have this phrase that he's using again and again and again that gods made with hands are not gods at all. Not the first time he said this. He's saying this in most every context he's coming in where these people are worshiping things they made with their own hands. Which seems to be kind of self-evident, right? A God that you concoct with your mind and make with your hands is not really a God who could have created you. I think of the same thing whenever I talk to people who try to redefine God to be someone they like. My God would never do that. If you concoct a God in your mind, then he's not worthy of your worship. The real God should be able to challenge you and rebuke you and offend you and make you mad and explode the categories in which you try to put him in. Otherwise, the God that you are worshiping is not God. He's just a projection of yourself. And so he brings this word, right, to these other craftsmen Demetrius does. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that God made with hands are not gods at all. You can imagine Demetrius is doing his homework, that he's lower, you know, his money's not coming in. He goes to some other guys and starts asking, man, have you, are you down? Is sales down? Is, is, something, is something happening? Have they raised taxes? Has there been shipwrecks? Is, the, is it the weather? What's going on that we cannot sell what we used to sell? And as he's asking, someone says, oh, have you heard about this guy named Paul? And as he begins to wander through of how we got to this place, right? What are they teaching in the hall of Tyrannus that is subverting the greatest Greek goddess that has ever existed in some little lecture hall? Verse 27, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing And that she may be even deposed from her magnificence. She in whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius begins to whip everyone up into a frenzy. And they flash mob in this amphitheater. Which was one of the biggest in the ancient world. It still exists today. You can gather 25,000 people there. And people begin falling in. This mob is created. In verse 28, 
And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with, filled with confusion. And they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. So he was not a follower of Jesus. He was a Jew had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. He was trying to disassociate himself from all the Christians. Hey, we're not like these crazy people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Eventually, this became, becomes this riot again. I, I find it funny that most people didn't even know why they were there. And when the town clerk, finally see a man with some wisdom here, had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper to the great Artemis and one of the sacred stones that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charge against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The man gets up with some sense, says his piece, the crowd departs. I got a few points of application that I want to talk about. Why does all this matter? This whole story, we've got this whole history of the gospel being subversive, ultimately changing all the culture of the entire city of Ephesus against all of Asia as they knew it, as the gospel begins to go from one city to the next. Two applications, one, first to your heart, and then second to our faith community, first to your heart. What can we learn here? We've got to examine and get rid of the idols in our hearts. We read something like this and we think, how foolish are they to really worship something that they created with their own hands? As far as a statue, how how foolish are they? And yet we in the West, we do the same thing, not just the idols. We worship the lifestyle that we've created. We worship the houses maybe that we're in. And we don't maybe bow on our knees and get down and, you know, fall in front of them. But we sacrifice our family to, to grow bigger and better. We, we sacrifice the things that God's doing us to attain more and more. You've got to be kidding if you don't think that we, have, we are in danger of idols creeping into our own heart. Last week, Jason said, as he was talking about the Athenians, 
that his fear is that most of us are more like the Athenians than we are like Paul, and I agree with that. Most of us even are like the Ephesians than we are like the Christians here. Idols, I think I have this on the screen, and this is simplifying it, and you... This was the greatest, hardest week to prepare this because there's so much about idolatry in Scripture. But idols are anything that promises to us a life of security and joy apart from God. That's what Artemis did. She was the protector and prosperer of the city. With her, they believed they were guaranteed security and joy. How dare anyone come in and threaten the things that provide us security and joy? That was their idol. What is ours? What is it in your life? About what do you think that if that is present in my life that I'm going to have power and joy? Is it influence or success or beauty or money or romance? Is it fame? Having children? Getting a lake house? Getting a beach house? Sorry, maybe those are mine. Um, Idols are not usually bad things. There was nothing bad about the meteorite that fell. Inherently, it was not evil. It was that they looked to it to provide security and joy. Idols are good things that have become God things to us. Things that we believe guarantee us power and joy. And without which, we don't think we can have power and joy. Yesterday, we were watching uh, football. And I was flipping through the commercials and Ellie says, Dad, why do you hate commercials? And I was like, I just don't, you know, they're just here to fill. They're trying to, she's like, yeah, but what if they're offering something that you really, really want and you didn't know that it existed before now? There's no such thing, Ellie. Right? The message of these commercials is get this and you're going to be happy. It's the whole, uh, or, or attain this style of life, or get this new home. It's the, it's the classic beer commercial where they're all having so much fun, right? And they're on a beach somewhere with a cold drink, and you're like, I want that life. If I could just get that kind of life, if I could dismiss the responsibilities and the weightiness and work, and if I could just get to that beach, right, my life would be good. But it's an illusion. It would bring no one real satisfaction, as a matter of fact, this is, what, this is uh, what Ecclesiastes, the whole book is. The richest, most wealthiest king in the world, Solomon, got everything. Everything he could ever want. And he said he gave himself over to everything. If it was food or drink or sex or power or accomplishment, he gave himself over to all of it. And what would he say at the end of it? It listed like 30 times that it's nothing under the sun that's going to bring you any sort of real satisfaction. The commercials paint this life, right? If you get this, you'll be happy. Or if you miss this, then your life is going to be over. And for some of us in our culture, marriage is that thing. That you believe the good life begins when you meet the right person. Can I ask you, could you have a joy-filled life without it? If not, then you've probably turned it into an idol. If you lose a good thing from your life, you're sad. But if you lose an ultimate God thing from your life, you're devastated. Could you be okay if your career never progresses? What if your big ship never comes in? What if you never get your big break? What if you never have kids? What if your health never improves? What if your work never gets noticed? What if you never accomplish anything on your so-called bucket list? 
What if how you've suffered is never made right in this life? What if the people who falsely acclaim you are never exposed for who they are? What do you think will really give you security and joy apart from God? That's your idol. David Foster Wallace, who's not even a believer, speaks to this in the heart of every human being. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Yahweh, and he lists several others, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in our daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out and so on. Even the world understands this. That if we worship anything other than God himself, we're going to be left empty. And ultimately those idols are going to eat us. I had a friend in high school whose boyfriend broke up with her and they had this back and forth of, you know, you, you know don't break up with me. It's going to devastate me. They had this thing. And at the end of our freshman year, I think it was the beginning of that summer, her boyfriend broke up with her and she took her life. Her idol ate her. The thing that she looked to to provide security and hope as a freshman in high school didn't go the way she thought it would go and it ultimately ruined her life. This doesn't start when we're adults. This starts when we're kids. Thinking, I've got to attain this. I've got to be within this crowd of people. I've got to go to that college. I've got to please my parents in this way. Or for parents, I've got to see my kids It's not just on the kids. Some of us parents that we're hoping our kids excel in such a way more than even more than they do, because by their succeeding, we're over parenting. We're making this the idol and it puts all this undue pressure and ultimately leaves us wanting. I know I'm out of time. The second thing, just real quickly, is that idols engage the deepest emotions of our heart. You can see this in the story. When you threaten their idolatry, they get violent. Their idols are their lifeblood. They believe that they're the protectors of the city. What is that in your life that is the protector of the city? What is that that's the idea that if you ever lost this or you never gained it, you would just simply despair? 
Last week, Jason talked about the idols of security and comfort, and they are so ever-present in our culture, in our city, and in my own life. I'd like to add two more to that list that are certainly strongholds in our city, and that's success and approval. Many of the things we do and say and plan are centered around success and approval. Even think about social media, how it has risen to be a staple in our lives. To such a, such a staple, it's the first thing we do when we wake up, it's the last thing we do when we go to bed, it's the thing that there's any silent moment throughout our day, we quickly reach for our phone and we look to see if we're approved by other people. Approval and success. But idolizing something ultimately keeps you from being able to enjoy it at all. You obsess over things, you can't enjoy them because you depend on them. When this good thing becomes a God thing, becomes an ultimate thing, becomes an idol that robs you of the joy that it could bring you in its proper place. God is jealous and he wants your heart. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. Paul said, I'm so concerned for you, church, that even though you started out well, the idols of your culture are going to suck you back in. And my prayer for you is that you would have a sincere and pure devotion for Christ. We don't, I don't have to keep describing what the hard idols are. I think you know what they are. And as our uh, friends over in Asia are working to reach the lost uh, people group over there that uh, some of you maybe got in your connection guide today. One of the things as I talk to them that they know that there's been a seismic change in their life is burn their demon shelf. Most all of them, uh, a lot of them animists, some Buddhists, a lot of them are animist, and they, they live at fear um, of the evil spirits. And so they make these sacrifices. In many of the homes, they have these little demon shelves. And many of them would come to Christ and start enjoying uh, the teaching of Christ and even say that they believe in Christ, but they, all, they wanted to keep those demon shelves up just in case. They wanted to hedge their bets, so to speak. He said, one of the ways that we know that the family is really on track with this is they'll take the demon demon shelf off and they'll go burn it in the fire. Another thing we look for, and I think I have a picture of this. Do you have the picture of the the little ropes? Yeah. So these same animists that have some of the demon shelves, they wear these uh, little strings, brightly colored things attached to them on their wrist and their ankles. And they believe that this kind of fends off these evil spirits. It's part of what they're raised, part of their culture, it's part of the stronghold of their idols. And one of my friends over there sent me this picture a while back to say, listen, this is the most beautiful scene for a missionary over there, is to see these people cutting these things off, throwing them down, throwing them into the fire, saying, I'm not depending on this anymore as an idol this to provide protection or even joy. Church, God's not just interested in our behavior. He wants your heart. 
He's always confronting the idols of our heart and the idols of our culture. Let me end with this last point of application. Not only does this speak to our hearts, but it speaks to our community. Not to our community as in the city we live in. It speaks to our faith community. That we have to be a counterculture not driven by the idols and values of our culture at large, but a community shaped by our love for Jesus and for each other. We see just real quickly these few things in this passage that when the county clerk gets up at the end, he says, listen, these people are free from accusation. In verse 40, he says, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Paul and his people lived with integrity in the city. They were free from accusation. They were clear in their presentation. Way back in verse 8, it says of Paul that as he entered the synagogues in the city for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He was not tampering down the message of the gospel. He was very bold in proclaiming it. His phrase became, God made with human hands or not God's at all. But the third thing is what I want to focus on. The thing that he did was they were compelling in their persuasion. Not their argument, but the way that they lived. Paul and his companions weren't out in front of the great temple of Artemis with sandwich boards, picketing Artemis, trying to make no Artemis trend on Twitter. That was, that was not what they were doing. That was not their hope. That was not their effort. It was the quality of their life, the intensity of their discipleship, and the fruit of their lives that was so evident in their community One commentator says it this way, it was the power of their changed lives that confronted and pushed out the old ways of the city. They didn't need to make signs about what they were against. Their lives were visual signs to a watching world in the stark contrast. Isn't this what Jesus said? That they wouldn't know us by what we were against, that they would know that you are my disciples by what? How you love one another. That we as a community should be so entrenched in the ways and words of Jesus that we love each other so deeply and sacrificially that the watching world would come into our midst or come into our homes and they would say, what makes you love each other like that? What is that? What about the way that you guys date or honor each other? What about your sexual ethic? What is that? Why would you do that with your bodies? Why do you do that with your money? Why do you do that with your, with your money? You could use that money to go on vacations and buy bigger things. Why do you spend your money that way? What about your time? The way you use your time, why do you give time to those things? The watching world might see what's going on even here. Of the Willis is trying to raise Forty or $50,000 and sacrificing and all these things only to bring home a child from around the, the other side of the earth with special needs and they have no idea what those things are. The watching world sees that and says, why would you do that with your life? That's the counterculture. That we would love in a way that's starkly different than the culture, that we would spend our money in a way that's starkly different than the culture, that we would sacrifice in such a way that starkly, I mean, it's just so different than the culture. Ultimately, that's the message that was such a counterculture against the city of Ephesus and worked so subversive in its nature that it toppled the city. Listen, our community will never be reached 
by taking billboards and ads out or standing on the corner or Twitter posts or Facebook posts about what we're for and against. You know what's really going to change our city? is people who really believe the way of Jesus is the only way to live. And that we sacrifice the idols of our hearts. That when we get a bonus, that we don't try to buy a bigger house or a bigger car. Not that there's something wrong with that, but it just elevates the way that we can give to ministry. Or how we can spend our time serving the homeless or adopting kids or serving those that are in desperate need. That's the greatest apologetic. When we forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven because of how Christ has forgiven us. That's what the watching world is looking for. They're not looking for someone who gathers on Sunday and cusses less. They're looking for something real and supernatural. And my question to us, church, is are we playing games and we're just pacifying the idols of our heart? We're like these people who want to acknowledge the way of Jesus but still have a demon shelf. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Nobody wants to hear the good news of Jesus from people who live the same way they do. But when we live in the ways of Jesus, the world begins to ask, what is that? Where is your hope? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take communion in a minute. And this is just such a great reminder that God wants our hearts. Paul tells the church at Corinth before you take communion that you need to examine your own heart, repent, and confess of anything in your heart that might be sinful. I'm going to give you some time to do that. Maybe you would ask God that he would just reveal, what are the idols of my heart? What's competing for him, competing with him as Lord of our lives? What are the things that we feel like we've got to have in order to be happy, to be joyful? Where's he and him alone? Is, is he enough? Not that we don't want those things or prefer those things, but if we didn't ever get them, is he enough? Father, as we prepare our minds and hearts for communion and response to you, Holy Spirit, would you speak very clearly to us? Would you reveal the parts of our own hearts that are drifting towards something that's not you, something that's not the gospel? Would you reveal the idols of our culture that have their claws in our own hearts? Holy Spirit, we ask for forgiveness and we repent of the many areas that we've chosen not to submit to your lordship. And I I pray, Father, that you would do this work in us through our repenting and belief as we take communion, remembering your death and resurrection so that we might have life. You would do something in us as a people. the song we sang earlier that you would revive us from the shallow excuse of a church that we sometimes are 
into something that really looks like part of your family. Jesus, do something in us. Even today, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Take as much time as you need. Our servers are ready. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion here, but Scripture says you need to be a member of God's church, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you just take the bread and dip it into the drink. You come when you're ready. I'm going to be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. And then we'll close out with a song of worship together. No.